0: This week we talk about how the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank exploit the globe.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Swerve Podcast. It's your co-host, Izzo. I'm also joined here by Magnum. What's up, everybody? If you're a first-time listener and you're wondering what you've stumbled across, we are
0: the Swerve Podcast, and we are two random dudes on a mission to understand everything in the universe, one obscure topic at a time. So our premise here is very simple. Every week, we pick a topic that we don't know anything about. Usually, it's listener-recommended, and then we research it and discuss it on the fly during the podcast. I mean, this week, we're going to be talking about the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, some crazy shenanigans with that. But I think before we get into that, Izzo, you
1: have some words. I do just want to mention to everyone that we have a Patreon.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Really simple two tiers. There's a $1 Ride the Wave tier, and that'll give you access to our bonus episodes that we release each month. You'll get the entire library of episodes for just a dollar. And then we also have the $3 Slap the Ass tier, and that'll give you access to those bonus episodes, and it'll give you shout outs on the podcast but you will also receive every episode we release a few days before anyone else. So you'll receive them on Sundays rather than our typical drop time of Wednesdays. We also have a tradition on this podcast. it would you like to enlighten the listeners? Of course, the tradition is that we like to drink on the podcast and take some listener-recommended drinks, maybe make some classic drinks, or sometimes even just keep it really basic. And we do a roundtable just to let you know what we're drinking and if there's a recommendation, we give a shout out as well. So I'll start us off with the round table. I've got this specialty watermelon beer. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good beer. It's more summertime, but I don't know. I feel like I'm in the summer spirit. So I mean, we've had a little bit of a meltdown, right? It's it's
0: it's winter, but it's not that cold. So Yeah, a little bit. Uh, what about you? What do you have? I have okay. So today I have something special. We had I had a recommendation from one of our Patreons, Sand Beach One Two Three, recommended we try um, a Pisco Sour. So this is interesting. This uh, this is one of our loyal friends from Chile, and this is a it's a Chilean Pisco is like a Chilean hard alcohol. Honestly, it was difficult for me to find, and I don't know. Like I mean, we're in Canada for listeners who don't know. I don't know if it's that's typical or or what, but like I tracked it down. We made it, and it's it's pretty fucking delicious. It's like uh, what is it? I've never made a drink with an egg in it before, like egg yeah. white. So this is my first time using an egg white recipe, so it's I cracked a fucking egg in this uh the egg white at least uh, mixed it up with some uh, fresh squeezed lime and simple syrup and then the pisco and like shook it up in a fucking jar that I have that has like a strainer on it and it's great nice and frothy
1: drink hmm it looks pretty good
0: yeah and then I lined the top with the uh, it's I don't know what the hell it is it's like some kind of salt and yeah, I don't know what the fuck it is it's like blue you know like mm. that blue salt you like use to like melt ice and snow and shit yeah it like looked like that but like fine but that's what i had interesting (laughs) i don't know but like it came in a special container that you like you know listeners can't see what i'm doing but you you move the drink upside down in it and it like sticks to the edge it came with like the salt rimmer or whatever yeah i don't know i think we got it like in a as a christmas gift one year and it was just like sitting in the pantry and i opened it but it was blue salt for some reason i don't know
1: Nice. Yep. Look forward to it uh, on our Instagram for the listeners.
0: We do post all of our drink recipes on Instagram, so you can follow us there to stay in the know, as well as just be updated when we drop topics, which is every fucking Wednesday. Now, how about we get into the basics of today's episode? Let's do it. Okay. So the reason we're doing today's topic, we're talking about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. They're very interrelated, so you can't really talk about one without the other. And we we had a lot of good feedback and people liking the Federal Reserve topic that we did a while back, as well as the Great Reset episode we did. When we researched those, people seemed to uh, enjoy that. So we're like, well, why don't we just like investigate some other global institutions that have questionable behavior? And some of the the obvious one was the IMF. So that's that's where we got how we got to this one. And I want to say while we're in the basics, most of this information that I'm going to be outlining, it's uh, sourced from this guy Alex Gladstein's essay. He wrote an essay called. Uh, Structural Adjustment, How the IMF and World Bank Repress Poor Countries and Funnel Their Resources to Rich Ones. And this Alex Gladstein guy, maybe it's Alex Gladstein, I don't know. Alex Gladstein. Gladstein. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Einstein. Yeah, Gladstein. He's actually the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. And he was also the vice president of strategy for the Oslo Freedom Forum. So basically, this guy, like, he's been calling out shit for a long time. You know, he's been advocating for, like, basic human rights for, you know, the most oppressed people in the world. So it's kind of cool. And this is, so this is, like, kind of where my information is coming from for this, if people want to dig deeper. But basically, so the IMF, this was... Um, created at what was called the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. And we have mes- met- mentioned this before in the podcast a couple times, but just to remind people, so it's standalone, this was like basically a conference that occurred after World War II. And essentially, at the Bretton Woods Conference, this was kind of when the U.S. like was decided to be the, the world reserve currency kind of like everyone all the winners got together and they're like I guess the US is the most powerful so like we'll use the US dollar USD as like our reserve currency to do you know international trade and shit. And that's like basically how sh- it's kind of that's how shit works. Like the winners they kind of decide how shit goes. Um but Shout out to our previous episode uh, on the Federal Reserve. If you want to dive more into Bretton Woods conference and like all the crazy shit that was with that, highly recommend that. But these, the IMF and World Bank, they kind of emerge out of that. And in what the IMF is supposed to do, it's the world's international lender of last resort. So I don't know it's kind of like it's kind of like the central bank of the fucking world, Right. Because like that's the point of a central bank. Um, although you know we've criticized central banks on this up on this podcast before, the purpose is when commercial banks are collapsing or like some kind of major financial institution needs liquidity, there's like the central bank can provide that, and it's supposed to prevent collapses. That's the idea of a lender of last resort. Um, and the IMF is supposed to be that kind of for. On an international stage, does that does that make sense? Kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've heard about the IMF before and kind of the economies it runs, but I haven't heard about the shenanigans until this episode. So it's nice to get a different take on it. Um, but yeah, essentially, you know, they're there to just like help the struggling countries, allegedly. So
0: yes, allegedly, it's kind of like when the like in two thousand eight when you know all these financial institutions they were handling these risky subprime mortgages and they're like oh shit we fucked everything up and like the the federal reserve the central bank of the united states like bailed everyone out instead of just because otherwise it would have been a collapse and yeah. you know like it's it's the same shit but like if a country needs to be bailed out instead of like a financial institution it's like oh we'll bail out this country but there's like major strings attached that's kind of like <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we'll get into it um but that's like the idea it's it's like a bailout to keep trade flowing when countries like can't afford imports anymore like they've just they just can't they're just they just don't have that ability to ha- get US dollars so they need it in some way to trade internationally um and i understand this might sound super boring right now cuz it's like all financial shit but like people please we're going to get into some shenanigans, and it, it's it's crazy. But we'll see, like, like, these bailouts, essentially they support, like, a fuckload of dictatorships, and they, like, <laughs> the harm that comes to the, the citizens um, from this is, like, so crazy, uh, and we'll get into it. Um, I have a f- quick fun fact in the basics. Uh, the IMF is currently bailing out Egyptian dictator... Abdul Fatah El Sisi, and he is responsible for the largest massacre of protesters since Tiananmen Square. The IMF just gave him three billion dollars.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> and they like uh, just to play like devil's advocate. When you like research what the IMF did, it's like, oh, uh, it's an economic reform that the 3 billion dollars is supposed to go to to reduce the deficit to help like the government increase tax revenues enhance the competitiveness of the economy and improve the business environment as well as attract foreign investment like that's what they're giving the money for but as we'll get into the episode even though that's the intent it gets screwed a lot mm-hmm. but if you like look at their website or like look at any like news source that's kind of pro IMF or like Pro U.S. uh, That's the story you'll get. Is it's helping the country rather than supporting the dictatorship?
0: Exactly. Yeah, the information is very one-sided. So essentially, the IMF—it's like a—they call it a, a supranational central bank. So, like I was saying, essentially, the IMF is like the Federal Reserve to the Federal Reserve, in a sense. (laughs) Um, although that's not that's not actually true really the imf is like the central bank to like other central banks the federal reserve because right it's the world reserve currency it's actually you know what i'm trying to say like it's not quite like that but that's a good way to think like it um easily it's like the central bank of the central banks so the imf mints its own currency and they call it the sdr this sounds for special drawing rights. So, you know how, like the US, the currency is USD, and in Canada, it's a CAD. The IMF, their currency is called SDR, and its value is based on a basket of the world's top currencies. So, uh, what I, my research said it was about 45% USD, 29% Euros, 12% Yen, or sorry, uh, 12% Yuan, 7% Yen and 7% pounds. That's like roughly what makes up an SDR. Um, and I found that they can lend as of 2020 about a trillion dollars. So they can just kind of hand out like a thousand billion dollars <laughs> at like, <laughs> that's like their capacity. <laughs> um, and just, just for a comparison, because I keep referencing the federal reserve, but When we did that topic, the Federal Reserve printed like four trillion dollars out of thin air, like through the pandemic. So you can just kind of see a comparison, like, but one trillion is a lot. And it's like people like, holy fuck, the IMF has that much money. But the Federal Reserve like did like four
1: trillion. So I don't know, perspective, I guess. Yeah, and that's supposed to like indicate, you know, if you're you you can help any country with at least like one trillion dollars, and then the U.S. is just helping themselves to four times that amount, and yeah, thinking there's not going to be any repercussions for it.
0: Yes, exactly. That's yeah, that's that's the inflationary environment um, currently we find ourselves in. But anyways, moving forward. So the associated with the IMF is the World Bank, and essentially the World Bank is the world's largest development bank. It's supposed to focus on loans for developmental projects. So like, say some poor country needs like a dam, like the World Bank is supposed to help fund stuff like that. Um, So like their idea, they're supposed to, quote, reduce poverty, increase shared prosperity and promote sustainable development, end quote. Um, I think this is a recent... This is just a note I have here. They gave three hundred million dollars to the Ethiopian government that was committing genocide in um, in Tigray. I think there was five hundred thousand deaths associated with that genocide, and there's So it's like one of those. It's like okay, like okay, are we really reducing poverty, increasing shared prosperity? I mean, you're is reducing really populations. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um. So, again, while we're in the basics, nation states they'll join the IMF to access the perks of the World Bank, and I have perks in quotation marks. So right now, there's 190 nations joined, and they each deposit their own currency um, or other more globally accepted currencies or assets like gold or the USD or euros, right? Because the idea here is, let's say you're a poor country um i can't think of a good one off the top of my head but like what's the zimbabwe i think it's just called the zimbabwean dollar yeah like would you rather have zimbabwean dollars or would you rather have like u.s dollars you know what i mean like exactly you can do way more with u.s dollars it's 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 more accepted because it's the world reserve (laughs) currency more countries accept it for imports um it's just anything it's more accepted And, and gold i mean obviously like again call out shout out to our federal reserve topic that used to be kind of like a world reserve currency so it's just more accepted um so you have to deposit things like that you can't just necessarily deposit like Zimb- zimbabwean dollars and be like that's cool with the imf it's mm-hmm. like you need to deposit like usd and we'll see later how that's like a leverage point that the imf pulls to like get countries to do their bidding essentially um but that'll come later. Now, the IMF and World Bank, they carry out work on behalf of really, it's like five major creditors. So the US, UK, France, Germany, and Japan. So Canada, we're not even in it. We're not even in the top, in the <laughs> top dogs. Um, <laughs> so I just thought that was funny. But uh, of all these major creditors in, the, in these institutions, the U.S. has the most voting power within both the IMF and World Bank, and it can like just easily veto decisions. So I think, what did I read? Um, they have 15.6% of the vote share at, world, at the World Bank, and the U.S. has 16.5% of the share of votes at the IMF. But to do anything, you need to have 85% of the votes. So they can veto because they have... They, that fifteen percent of people voting against, they can always get that.
1: Okay, I see.
0: Yeah, so they can never hit their eighty-five percent quorum or whatever without getting without getting like the U.S.'s approval. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, they control the IMF and World Bank, um, the U.S. Um, now. Because I kind of already touched on this because currencies of poorer countries aren't really like tradable for goods or services worldwide. Um, These like poorer countries, they need to earn us dollars or euros so that they have that currency so that they can, um, you know, trade with the world essentially. Cause like as a country, like again, like you'd rather accept us dollars than like some depreciating currency that like, you're like, what the fuck? I don't want this. Um, because you can just do more with it. You know what I mean? Like, like you can't, like, say you, say you get, like, microchips from China imported to Canada. Like, you're not going to buy them with Zimbabwean dollars. You know what I mean? Like, they, they, yeah. the, they're not going to accept that. So, you need to, like, trade dollars for a currency or earn a currency so that you can do that, if you're a poor country, at least. I hope that makes sense. Because this is, that's where shit gets really confusing, is, like, forex markets and shit and like currency exchanges at least for me so i don't know does that make sense
1: what i'm saying yeah should we linger no no it makes sense um because even like you think about zimbabwe why they have such high inflation is because they just printed money as much as they wanted so you don't want that currency you don't want to accept that currency because i could just print Money just yep. like the US did, but exactly. again, the US has that power and they have the voting shares where they need it, so they want to stay in power and uh, keep themselves. That's the world reserve currency. Yeah, exactly.
0: Usually, like if a government is corrupt. Uh, you don't really accept their current well they're all corrupt but the most corrupt governments like people are like i don't trust that currency because like it could be worth 50 percent less in like two years if shit hits the fan it's like then what so um now the point here that i was trying to make is that the u.s because the federal reserve prints u.s dollars and that's the world reserve currency they can just like create usd whereas poor countries um they if they want to export to earn u.s like they have to export things to earn u.s dollars so (laughs) right so if you want to import something as a poor country it's like you have to export things and like sell things to get u.s dollars so that you can buy things with u.s dollars yeah whereas the u.s doesn't have to do that they can just be like hey like we have here's some fucking crisis um let's just vote to like print all the money and then we can just like government spending never ends and we can just do whatever the fuck we want um today and then everyone else will suffer the inflation later, whether it's poor countries or citizens. Um so that's like that's that's an asymmetry that we should point out that will come up as we go through this. Um now many poor countries they run out of the US dollar this way because um it's just they can't compete, right? Like they have like they have to earn the dollars. They can't just make them. So when this happens, they essentially the countries they need to borrow from the IMF. And they have to promise the IMF that they'll pay them back in the future. So say you want to import something, you're like, hey, I need what's something can't like what do we I don't know. We I don't know what we fucking export. Maybe it's a bad example. Again, let's use the chips. Say you need microchips. It's like if you want to import those microchips, you have to pay for those microchips with the U.S. dollars. And say you don't have U.S. dollars. You're like, well, hey, I'll just hit up the IMF. They'll give us like 500 million and we'll get a bunch of microchips so we can build like this server farm in our poor country or something. It's just like a hypothetical. But then you owe that to the IMF in the future. So... Basically, how this works in practice, it's kind of like a quick fix for dictators and authoritarian states. Like they kind of just fail to operate the country well, because like they're fucking crazy and they're dictators and like they're authoritarians. Their country goes to shit. They can't afford to do anything. So they go to the IMF to get bailed out at the expense of their country in the future. So this is, this is where we, this starts spiraling into shit as we get through some of the case studies later um now i have so I have a quote here it's estimated that quote every dollar provided to the third world by the i m f unlocks a further four to seven dollars of new loans and refinancing from commercial banks and rich country governments end quote so yeah, you can see like basically what that's saying it's like you <laughs> the, the debt is is, is, is going to go crazy, basically.
1: Um, and it
0: does, and we will see. It's
1: crazy. Yeah, because um, you're buying those goods or imports with debt, and then that debt accumulates interest and everything, so it's even more expensive the larger the debt it, it is. So you have to either export more, you know, save up your dollars that you got in bail money for loan payments and et cetera.
0: And usually what happens is actually they'll just default on their debt, but get bailed out with more debt. I
1: mean.
0: <laughs> so like it kind of never ends and we'll see, I have some like grotesque numbers later that will just like blow people's minds. Um, so we'll just, again, it's going to be a little bit of an extended basics here, but the, we need to talk a little bit about structural adjustment loans just quick. So essentially with these structural adjustment loans, borrow borrow. that's a fucking weird word to say for me for some reason right now. <laughs> Must be all the blue salt. <laughs> Borrowers not only have to pay back uh, principal plus interest; they also have to agree to change their economies according to um, the World Bank and IMF demands. So there's, it's not like just like a no strings attached loan. There's like actual stipulations. Um, now, basically, how these usually work: these structural adjustment loans. Um, it's like stipulated that. Whoever the client is, they have to maximize exports at the expense of domestic consumption. So to put that in a, well, I we'll have an ex- case study after this about shrimp in uh, Sri Lanka, where the stipulation was like, hey, you need to export a bunch of fucking shrimp because we love shrimp <laughs> in like France, UK, and like you know, like these rich nations. So like, as long as you are exporting shrimp and we can buy it for cheap. We're going to give you this loan. Ha! And like, yeah. so it's kind of like a leverage point where people can get what they want. And we'll we'll see what happens when I get through this case study with that. But um, essentially what happens is, to put this another way, the IMF and World Bank loans, they're kind of designed to be wealth-extracting structures in practice. Like, we can we can say whatever the fuck we want. Like, oh, it's supposed to do this. It's supposed to be this. Maybe even the people who work in these, Financial structures believe they're doing really good things, but in practice, this is what's happening. And there's a fuck. We, the examples are endless. It's fucking endless. Um, now they claim that their loan condition, condition conditionality enables borrowing countries to achieve a healthier balance of trade and payments. But again, basically, the real purpose, it's kind of like to bribe governments to prevent them from making the economic changes that would make them more independent or self-supporting is kind of what happens in practice. Um, some of the claims we're going to outline when we get through all this, like as we move through this topic, some of the claims made against the World Bank and IMF are that one, they've impo- impoverished and endangered millions of people. Uh, two, they've enriched dictators and ruling elites. Three, they've jettisoned human rights. And four, um, they've instituted like a multi-trillion dollar flows of food, resources, and cheap labor from poor countries to the wealthiest. So it's like, these are the claims. These are the claims. And maybe we sound really biased, but like this is is like this essay that we're outlining. This is kind of what its thesis is, is that all this shit has happened. And it's pretty convincing. (laughs) Yeah. So before we hop out of the basics, uh, I have a quote here from Richard Nixon. This was the same president that defaulted on paying U.S. debt and broke the gold standard in 1971.
1: Richard Nixon said the following, quote, Let us remember that the main purpose of aid is not to help other nations, but to help ourselves.
0: End quote. So here I want to talk about, or sorry, I said Sri Lanka earlier. My fucking bad. It's Bangladesh we're talking about. When I was saying that shrimp thing, it's Bangladesh. But we, I want to go through this case study. This is just to kind of set things up for the other parts. But this is this is something I didn't know. It's it's kind of crazy. I didn't think shrimp was such a hot commodity. But shrimp is considered white gold. Did you know that? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a valuable commodity, and there's a fuckload of it in Bangladesh. So there's like these shrimp lords in Bangladesh and they just crush like because shrimp is so valuable. um, They they call them shrimp lords and they like run the kind of trade there. And it's kind of like all funded by the IMF. But basically, it's the second largest export of Bangladesh. Um, And just to give some quick history here, in 1970, uh, there's a cyclone. It's called Cyclone Bola. It killed one million people on the coast of Bangladesh. Um, it's this particular cyclone is still the deadliest tropical cyclone ever recorded in history. There was 10-meter-high waves that crashed into the coast, and like a million people died. It's crazy. Um, now, why I'm saying this is that in the 1960s, there was a massive array of dikes that were constructed to protect the coast because a third of the population lives on the coast in Bangladesh. Um, but what happened was Loans from the World Bank and IMF were brought in to kind of expand shrimp farming. And to expand that shrimp farming, they actually had to damage the dikes. They had to drill holes um, into the dikes that were supposed to protect the coast. So like, number one, it's like, in order to expand the shrimp farming, this massive hurt in the 1960s, they had to destroy their protection. And then 1970 rolls around. You have the worst cyclone in recorded history. It kills a million people. Yeah. So it's kind of like, kind of sketch. Um, but there's other downstream effects of this. That's just like one crazy thing. You could just say, oh, that's a coincidence. Like if you're playing Devil's Advocate. But the seawater from oceans, in the process of making these shrimp ponds, it destroyed wetlands and arable farmland. Farmland's important, and mangrove forests. So I think forty-five percent of mangroves were lost, and those were like natural protection from the storms as well. So like they lost their dikes as well as the mangroves. So they were they weren't as protected. But also like the farmland gets fucked. Now people who used to live off the land, right? They had farmland. They would grow food. Um, They could kind of like support themselves independently. That's all gone. That's destroyed. So this kind of goes to the point of like, yes, you can make your farmland into a shrimp pond and you can make like profit that way. But like shrimp, you're not reliant on yourself or the community at this point. You're kind of like whoever's paying the shrimp is kind of like they kind of own you. And that's kind of what happens. You see what I'm saying, like yeah, it just kind of destroys their ability to be independent because they're kind of coerced into like, yes, you must make shrimp. Hmm. Now the the shrimp collectors, like they they're getting fucked by this. They make up about fifty percent of the labor force, and they see six percent of the profit. So like usually this accumulates, you know, in like the politicians involved in like coordinating these loans or like the shrimp lords themselves 30 percent are child laborers and they work nine hours in salt water for less than one u.s dollar a day it's crazy to make like seven bucks in a week Before we continue the episode, if you're enjoying our Globally Repressed podcast, the people you hang out with probably will too. Do us a solid and please pass on this episode to your social media friends on Facebook, Twitter or other platforms. We would definitely appreciate your support. I'd also like to take this time to shout out some of our valued listeners. Shout out to Jua Palooza on Instagram for attempting to get us on Joe Rogan. Shout out to Leroy Crumpet, Ask the Dust 501, A Dutch Monkey, Alice Lynn McCarty, Nick underscore O'Connor underscore 31, Bronco Breezy, Brent Bab J, Striking Starboy, Savannah underscore Walker 81, Dana M, and Trade Dial for liking and commenting on our stuff. We appreciate you all. Lastly, huge epic shout out to our new Patreon, Sebastian Brown, coming in at that slap that ass tier. Your support is massively appreciated. We are sending positive, unstoppable energy your way. Use it and be unstoppable, Sebastian. To everyone else, please feel free to submit your topic or drink recommendations at www.theswervepodcast.com. May good karma and vibes with all of you back to the show. Another downstream effect of this is that many people have to, many of the children, they actually leave school to do this. So like the, they're just illiterate because they don't complete an education. And the other thing, like there's always like counterpoints where people are like, well, you know, what else would people be doing? Like at least this is paying something and like you can build from it. But like when they protest for like better work conditions and stuff, like you should, you should be able to like, that's pretty reasonable demand um, these usually get thwarted by violence. So, like shrimp lords, there's an example of a shrimp lord attacking one march with explosives, and then decapitating a woman because they're like they're like, "Well, oh, we just like don't want these shitty work conditions." Holy shit! This has been referred to as shrimp serfdom in um, Bangladesh, and this is like ongoing. It's kind of crazy. The World Bank and the IMF structural loans those those loans I was talking about in the basics. So they grew shrimp profit from 2.9 million in 1973 to 90 million in 1986 and then to 590 million in 2012. So if you just look at raw numbers, you know, like the IMF they probably point to that and be like what a success we brought all this profit to Bangladesh. The problem is that this favors exports at the expense of the traditional farming and consumption of the people in Bangladesh. Kind of like we were saying. So it's like their independence gets lost because, you know, like they they have to just do this thing. The more important problem, well, maybe not more important, but another extremely significant problem is that you can be like, oh, yeah, look at all this money. But like the earnings flow to the ruling elites and the international creditors. The profit's not going to the Bangladesh people, it's going to pay back the fucking debt and the interest. And it's also accumulating to the ruling elites. And the shrimp lords. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you can be like look at all this money we're making. Look at look at all the money we made. It's like, yeah, you made a fuckload of money. The Bangladesh people didn't.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> so like, yeah, you can you can show these figures all fucking day, but it's it's clear what the the outcome is. The Bangladeshi debt was 145 million in 1973. 145 million. Okay, million it's 95.9 billion in 2022 so that's a lot yeah that's yeah that's a lot Hmm, it's a lot so it's kind of like it's it's like some have referred to it as like indentured servitude cuz like you're going to pay 95.9 billion off with shrimp shrimp exports
1: yeah even like like right now like 10% of that is not profit. Mm -hmm. Like they're not making even a billion dollars of profit. So how can you pay off, you know, 10 times that amount in debt if you're not making that much profit? Yeah, it's crazy. Just to like reiterate, like the revenue made from profits
0: of this export, like it's really, it's just going to service foreign debt with interest. So like foreign institutions are getting paid, but not really the Bangladeshi people. Um, The other thing is a lot of money, like the profits from this goes to develop military assets. So again, it's like, it's not like the Bangladeshi working conditions get improved from this. It's like, no, like buy more military shit and like foreign financial institutions that are like, you know, US based or like G7 based. It's like, these are the people making the money and also just like the, the aristocracy in that that establishes these relationships with these global institutions. Like, they are profiting from this. So, like, kind of like the end outcome, it's like, kind of like the shrimp serfs. They've been impoverished. Their farmland and coast has been destroyed. You know, they're not less dependent on themselves and they're less able to feed themselves than before. And they're less free because they really only have one option. It's like, I must shrimp farm. And it's like, how are you gonna work your way out of poverty if that's like, you know, like, if your whole nation, I forget what it was. How, they're the second largest exporter of shrimp in the world. I think it's their large, their largest second largest ex got it. exporter. Okay, so like if every if the whole industry is geared to one thing, and that whole system, like the wealth doesn't really get distributed, or doesn't flow. I don't, I don't know. I don't. I'm, I hesitate to use. I don't know what the right word is there, but it's just not flowing as you would assume. It's getting like it's getting siphoned,
1: yeah, into well, other institutions. Well, I mean it said it was 50% of their labor force so 50% of the people are making 1 US dollar a day like how does anybody crazy, generate yeah. wealth if half the people are doing that
0: you can't i i don't think in 2013 the world bank loaned 400 million to bangladesh to fix ecological damage but really like this is this is cuz remember i was saying like They funded to do the shrimp farming and the shrimp farming like fucked up all the dikes and stuff and like fucked up all the farmland. Yeah. So that happened like 40 years ago. And then the World Bank's like, you know what, we'll give you 400 million to fix that. And it's like, well, you fucking did it. (laughs) Like your actions caused it. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're taking an interest fee on hundreds of millions of dollars when it's like they kind of started initiated the problem to begin with Bangladesh has received 10 structural adjustment loans from the IMF um, and just like recall through this process the debt went from 145 million to 95.9 billion. They're now on their 11th structural adjustment with the IMF for 4.5 billion more debt. <laughs> so oh. like just to conclude this section here, the World Bank and the IMF claim to help support these poor countries. But the outcome after fifty years, it's that the Bangladesh people they're more dependent and indebted than they ever were before.
1: If you get up to one trillion dollar in debt with them, they just like consume your country. Just a takeover <laughs> becomes like a state of the US, I guess.
0: <laughs> like well, it's pretty much ma- like it's like a, a tri- like a tribute is being made. Yep. In a sense, you know how, like on Walking Dead, they have to make the tribute to Negan or whatever, yeah, it's essentially like that, <laughs> but like in shrimp <laughs> in in a sense, like not to be too cynical, like i I don't know, it just it I don't know, it just seems fucked. that's yeah. the best way I can put it, and that's just one country out of
1: yeah, who knows how many, but
0: so that's a great case study, just to keep in your pocket about kind of how this works overall but i want to talk more about the imf the world bank and the structural adjustment loans in this next part here basically like how a typical imf or world bank loan goes it's kind of like this is like literally how it goes down like you'll have like a wealthy imf member fly in like business class to like meet a dictator or an authoritarian or like an undemocratically elected leader and then like they just offer them millions or even billions of dollars in exchange for Basically like favors. Does that make, you see what I'm saying? Like, Yeah. It's just like, it's kind of fucked. So like these guys fly out and they'll negotiate something. Um, usually it's a mix of kind of the following. The currency will be devalued, an abolition or reduction of foreign exchange and import controls, a shrinking of domestic bank credit, higher interest rates, increased tax, and end to consumer subsidies on food and energy wage ceilings, restrictions on government spending, especially in healthcare and education, favorable legal conditions and incentives for multinational corporations, selling off state uh, enterprises and claims on natural resources at fire sale prices, the opening up of previously remote regions through transportation and telecommunications investments, aiding multinational corporations in the mining sector, (laughs) enlist, sorry, this is a long fucking list, insisting on production for export, Pressuring borrowers to improve legal privileges for the tax liabilities of foreign investment, imposing minimum wage laws and trade union act- opposing minimum wage laws and trade union activity, ending protections for locally owned businesses, financing projects that appropriate land, water, and forests from poor people and hand them to multinational corporations, and finally shrinking manufacturing and food production at the expense of the export of natural resources and raw goods. Big list, big mouthful, but basically, the, I, the point was these are kind of everything the IMF kind of leverages. So they'll be like, "Hey, we'll give you four billion dollars, but you need to do, you know, maybe ten of these twenty things, or like five of these twenty things, or something like just whatever makes the most sense." Those are kind of like the stipulations that get made. It's it's y- something from this list, which is you, as you heard, is quite long. I think the average IMF loan it contains twenty conditions. So if they go meet a dictator and they're like, "Hey, we'll give you," I forget what we were saying off the top, but like they gave three billion dollars to like that guy in Egypt that like LCC, committed. yeah. So and then you know it's something like that. They're like, "Hey, here's three billion dollars, but you must do like twenty of of these things." None of these conditions are ever like, "Oh, protect free speech" or like "spend less on the military." It's like. It's everything I just said. It's not like human right based.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's everything where foreigners benefit more than the local population.
0: That's that's you could sum all that up that way. Yeah. So there's a term for this. It's for this type of behavior. It's called weaponized debt. That's the term. And it involves the tactic of the double loan. So like the idea here is it kind of seems like imperialism is not really done by the sword anymore well sans Russia I guess they're kind of by the sword but but it's it's kind of like debt now like you weaponize debt that's kind of how you gain control
1: of nation states to to give like a definition of weaponized debt it is when some when a country or somebody lends money, provides a loan to a government with the intention of using debt as leverage to secure certain policy outcomes or concessions. For example, the lender may require the borrower to implement certain economic reforms or make political changes as a condition of the loan. And In some cases, the terms of the loan may be structured in a way that the borrower is forced to prioritize debt repayment. Over other spending, leading to cuts in social spending and public services.
0: So, like an example I have here in my notes is, like, say um, there's a loan for an ele- a hydroelectric dam to a poor country. Basically, what happens here is that money is immediately spent on Western companies. So it's like the IMF gives the money to like uh, the poor country, but the poor country immediately spends that on like a Western company. So it goes back to the foreign entity. So that they they'll come build the dam, but like the money, it just like went in a, it just went back to where it started essentially. You know what I mean? Like it it went yeah. back to the it not not necessarily, but like that's usually what happens. So in practice, like the taxpayer of the poor country is now paying the IMF back the principal and the interest of the loan, while companies based kind of in the U.S. Or or sorry, based in U.S. dollars or euros or yen, like they're making the money because the IMF, if they lend U.S. dollars, it's like the U.S. dollars is going to go back to the West. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's not going to kind of stay. Graham Hancock, of all people, he has a quote about this from his book, The Third World Debt Crisis. He said, quote, 70 cents out of every dollar of American assistance never actually left the United States. End quote. That's true. It's kind of crazy. That's a good uh, get rich scheme. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's Yeah. No, no kidding. It it's it's very effective. So the the IMF would argue that this is aid and assistance, but like really the point we're making is like the structure is very clear. Like charity is basically the opposite. It's not it's it just it's like that Richard Nixon quote. It's like you aid to help yourself. Yeah. I have a quote from Peter Tomas Bauer, he's an
1: economist, and he said the
0: following, quote,
1: The concept of the third world, or the South, and the policy of official aid are inseparable. They are two sides of the same coin. The third world is the creation of the foreign aid. Without foreign aid, there is no third world,
0: end quote. So I just think that's like a very powerful quote. It's uh, essentially arguing that, you know, like the the foreign, it's it's not that the third world, it, the foreign aid is causing the, the third world, essentially.
1: Yeah. Which is like something radical you would never expect. Just radical. No, because we grew up hearing that it's like a oh, third world country, but it's like, how did they become a third world country? You don't get into the details. Like, I have never learned about this before. How essentially the IMF or World Bank or aka the US is just fucking everyone over and creating these conditions where it just gets worse and worse. While other countries like North America here, uh, life just kind of, eh, I mean, it's getting better, but. Yeah, it's no, it's,
0: it's crazy. I want to get to this next section. This is something, it's called the debt trap. So we'll work through this and explain a little bit more about debt but essentially like we all kind of know how loans work. So like the borrower has to pay more to the creditor and the creditor is the IMF in this case than was received. Cause there's always like an interest on whatever the loan was. So between 1970 and 2007, the total debt service paid by poor countries to rich ones was 7.15 trillion. So like the flow of capital, capital to rich countries, is just very massive. Like, Seven seven trillion is a lot of money. In 2012, 1.3 trillion in developing countries was received as aid. In that same year, 3.3 trillion flowed out. So it's like the scales don't really make sense yeah. <laughs> of what's going on. This is what I was talking about, like the wealth extractive nature of this structure, it seems like. Data from 1960 to 2017 indicates that $62 has been drained from developing worlds. So I have this quote here from this guy named Jason Hickel. He's a British anthropologist, and he said the following,
1: quote, For every $1 of aid that developing countries receive, they lose $24 in net outflows. End quote.
0: So it's, it's like they're being drained rather than aided i don't i don't know exactly
1: That's i don't crazy. know so he's saying like they're losing 24 times what they're gaining <laughs> pretty much it's just hard to wrap <laughs> your head around that like well like i mean the die hard free
0: market um part of me is like well they must be re- like you're receiving something if you're if you're paying If you're paying for something, you're receiving something. But I think the problem is what happens here. It's not necessarily a free market because like the wealth accumulates to the dictator, or the authoritarian, whoever the fucking corrupt person is like, that's where the wealth accumulates. So it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't flow to the, the, the citizen. It kind of just benefits whoever is the aristocracy in whatever regime is being funded I think that's the problem. Yeah. I mean,
1: like (laughs) more than anything. We've seen this structure before, though, in those like large charity organizations. It's like forever for every one dollar that you donate to them, like 80 to 90 percent is just like. Goes to administrative costs or whatever, and only 10 percent actually goes to the cause. But then even there, it's like massive corruption in the. Organizers of that country will just like take all that profit as well. So you're essentially exactly. It it just doesn't make it either. It's the same model. It's just now applied to international scales and countries rather than just charity groups.
0: Yeah, dude, fucking Coney 2012, man. Yeah. <laughs> How many people gave money? They bought some dumb sticker, put it all over the place, and what the guy just like took all the money, got naked, and like jerked
1: off in a bush or some shit. You know, like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: isn't that what happened? Wasn't. it he- I think he was just, like, stealing, like, kidnapping people and executing. kidnapping people? Yeah, I think he was, like, kidnapping people and executing them, like, Muslims in the country oh. or something like that.
0: Oh, no, Kony. I know Kony, but I mean the, the organizer of Kony 2012. Oh,
1: no, I don't know Like, then. the
0: charity organizer. It was just, like, some white guy, and he was just, like, fucking high out of his mind, walking around naked and, like, jerking off in bushes and shit. Oh, shit. No, I didn't know that. And every he, every... <laughs> People, I, I don't know how much money they. He probably got given like a hundred million dollars. Like I don't know. I don't know what it was, but like some obscene amount of money,
1: and he just like got high and like and naked mm-hmm. and just like publicly embarrassed himself. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a non nonprofit, so you have to spend all that money you got. You can't just. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess you could profit it. That's my salary. Fuck. Like, did you stop
0: Coney 2012?
1: <laughs> and he's just like high, jacking
0: off in a bush, and like. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not.
1: (laughs) And everyone just forgot about it. Forgive and forget. Just like, ah, fuck it.
0: We all make mistakes. (laughs) Who hasn't got naked in the street and high? And jacked off. I don't know if he jacked off. He might have just been naked. Now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) In any case, he was high and naked. Freely about. That's what happened. That's where your Coney 2012 money fucking went. So... And that's what the IMF is doing, basically. Like, <laughs> like essentially, countries. So okay, let's quit back in so countries like India and the Philippines and the Congo, they basically uh they owe their former colonial masters 189 times the amount they owed in 1970. Um, so like this is this is this debt trap we're talking about. It's just the the debt never Gets serviced. It just gets bigger. It's it's like the opposite effects occurring. So instead of ending exploitation and unequal exchange, uh, studies show that structural adjustment policies grew them in massive ways. So it appears that the IMF and World Bank, their goals to are are like to enrich creditor nations at the expense of poor ones. Just structurally, that's what's happening. It's like the the lender, whoever's lending, is getting more wealthy than the borrower. But normally, like like how a loan ideally would work is like if you did need capital to fund something like say you're an entrepreneur, you would get that loan and you would build something that's more valuable than that loan before, so it's like the wealth creates more wealth. it doesn't seem like this is happening with developing countries, right It's like they're taking the money and it's like a dictator, he just like buys a bunch of shit and like you know buys like a tank or like ten tanks or some shit, yeah, and that's kind of like what happens it's like and then like the, the citizens
1: don't really benefit it's just Like the
0: wealth didn't build more wealth.
1: It just like, like, you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, like the other thing that happens too, like if you or I default on the loan too many times, they'll take everything we own to try and like pay back that loan. Uh, But with these countries, it's like you can't take everything. So you just like issue more debt and more debt and more debt and just like give them more strict uh, policies to follow uh, to try and pay you back. So... In the ideal scenario, it's like if you get one loan and you fuck it up, hey, you're not going to get another loan, but that's not the structure of the IMF.
0: But this is what the structure is now. So like in 1944, we were saying this: these institutions formed after the Bretton Woods Conference. By the 1970s, third world debt was so big that it was only possible to service with new debt. So this is a literal Ponzi scheme. So like basically what I'm saying, in 25 years, essentially, like – after the Bretton Woods conference, like these debtor nations these nations that borrowed money like they couldn't pay it back no matter what they did they just it's like continual bailouts from the i m f and it's just never stopped. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. This is yeah. why, in our first case study, it's like they went from one hundred forty five million debt to ninety five point nine billion and they're like gonna get billions more. what was it four point five billion or something
1: yeah. Something like that, so
0: that 's like they'll be at a hundred billion basically so it just never ends it's crazy that this is how like the financial system works it's doesn't i can't even comprehend it uh so there was these investigative journalists uh, named Sue Branford and Bernardo uh, Kusinski and they said between nineteen seventy six and nineteen eighty one Latin governments of which 18 of 21 were dictatorships borrowed 272.9 billion so it's like you know almost 300 billion dollars is just like going straight to dictatorships with like these these strings attached right like that whole list that i that was boring as fuck that that's all being leveraged so out of that like 300 billion basically 91.6% was spent on debt servicing 91.6% went to pay back debt. <laughs> yeah. And 8.4% was used on domestic investment. And I guess like the point is even out of that 8.4%, like like we were saying that should be building things that make people wealthier. Like a lot of that just gets wasted because it's like can you trust a di- like is the dictator going to run like a sound I don't know, like utility service or like, you know, expand internet infrastructure or electrical grids. It's like, no, he's going to buy like some sick
1: shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where the 92% went. It's just like buying yachts and cars and military weapons and, I don't know, fighting your oppressor or like people protesting against you. So I want
0: to talk a little bit more about dictators now. Again, like we mentioned this before, but like usually the borrower is like an unelected or unaccountable leader. And the point here is that like these decisions to engage with the IMF, they're made without the decision or sorry, the consent of the citizens. So it's it's not like there's like a popular mandate supported by the citizens. It's just like this guy's like, hey, I'm being offered $4 billion. I'm just going to take it. You know what I mean? Like, why (laughs) wouldn't I? So... And again, like the vast majority of that goes back to pay the IMF, so it just goes right back to the IMF, and then of that, a lot of it gets siphoned to the aristocracy, and then anything that gets spent, remember, like it's getting, it's it's funding foreign, it's going back to like the West, basically. Yeah. Ian Vasquez and Doug Bando they wrote this book called Perpetuating Poverty. And they said the following. They said, quote, The IMF
1: has rarely met a dictatorship that it did not like. End quote.
0: In 1979, 15 of the most oppressive um, governments received a third of IMF loans. Ethiopia, 16% of the budget of the IMF, or what is this? I Sorry, I have my notes fucked up. I think 16% of the IMF budget, um, that sounds like way too much though. Anyways, they they received a loan from the IMF and basically Mengistu's forces, they were herding people into concentration camps and collective farms. In 2014, the government had used part of a $2 billion bank loan to forcibly relocate 37,883 indigenous ANUAC families. This was sixty percent of the country's entire Gambela province. They kind of just got like forced to relocate, um, and they could do that because this loan like allowed that. During this, like soldiers beat, raped, and killed Anuak who refused to leave their homes, and the World Bank approved new funding for quote vil- 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 villageization end quote even after knowing all this had happened. So like. This dictator, or I I don't actually know the entire situation, but like forced all these people into concentration camps, people were beat, raped, and killed. And because they had the funds to like execute on this, and even knowing that, they're like, well, here's another loan. It's
1: like it's what? I'm so confused by that. It's crazy. They must have some really good exports. Uh, yeah.
0: The Sudanese regime they had 16 million while it was dry they got 16 million from the IMF while they were driving 750,000 refugees out of Khartoum into the desert hundreds of millions were sent to the Iran theocratic dictatorship hundreds of million to Mozambique security forces were in Mozambique these were infamous for torture rape and summary executions they were getting hundreds of millions George Aieti outlines in his book, Feeding Dictators, that 75 billion to nine ty- 75 billion was sent to nine tyrants alone. Paul Baia, Idris Debu, uh, Lansana Conte, Paul Kagimi, Hauri Museveni, Hoon Sen, Islam Karamov, Nursultan Nazarbayev, and Emo La... Raman, I guess they in total they all got like 75 billion in the Congo. Mobutu had 51 Mercedes, 11 chateaus in Belgium and France. He had a Boeing 747 um, after receiving 11 IMF structural adjustments. <laughs> so, this is what I'm saying again. Yeah. It's like this is what's going on. It's the same story. Um, basically, he was like pocketing 30% of the incoming aid. And he led a bloody 32-year reign. He let people starve, devalued their currency 80%. So, but he got his Mercedes and shit. Fuck. And, like, this is just, like, some examples. Like, it doesn't end. Like, the examples are endless. You can just keep going and going and going with the same story with the dictators being funded and, like, fucking shit up. There was an assassination also. This guy, Thomas Senkara, he advocated in Ethiopia to not pay debt because the dictators that took the loans were not elected and they acted out of self-interest rather than the people's interest. So he's like, just because they made a stupid fucking decision doesn't mean we should all suffer. We're not fucking paying you back. Yeah. That's what that was his position. So he boycotted the IMF and he refused structural adjustments. Um, he was assassinated three months later. Hmm. So, so I don't know. I think actions speak louder than words. Like what, like, after he was assassinated, there was a 27 year long military regime that took over. And that military regime received four structural adjustments and borrowed a dozen times from the World Bank. Wow. I don't know. That's fucking nuts. So you can't even stand up to it. It's just like, you're like, I don't agree with this. Like, why should this person's stupid decision influence me? And you just get, he's just like, well, we'll assassinate that guy. <laughs>
1: yeah. And they could do it because it's a dictatorship. They're just, So they're just like, ah, it's the dictator that killed him. But really, it's just,
0: who knows? It just seems very sus. Yeah. I want to touch on agricultural dependence. Countries that interact with the IMF tend to transition from growing their own food to importing it from rich countries. So you can kind of think again, like, right, think back to the Bangladesh thing. If If they're using all their land to produce shrimp they're not using their land to feed themselves so they have to feed they have to feed themselves somehow and you can't just eat fucking shrimp so it's like you now have to import from other countries so it's like you're exporting goods that are demanded in rich countries um with these like crazy IMF loans that really don't benefit you they benefit all these other parties but then on top of that it's like now you have to buy food from other people
1: yeah so it's like you're you're <sighs>
0: It's, it's, it's like you're getting fucked from all these different angles.
1: Well, I mean, like the other thing is, too, uh, when they start like importing these foods, um, it's also cheaper to buy them imported than locally produced. Like even right now, if you and I go to the grocery store, it's probably cheaper in the grocery store than it is like at a farmer's market or something like that. So that's the way you can think of it. If you're trying to like make that one US dollar that you make a day go further, you're going to try... You're going to buy that imported food, which then doesn't support the local growers. And it just like perpetuates this whole economic economic system of imports uh, rather than exports. Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess that, that's a good point, too, though, because like I, I do I will say like because we're being well, I mean, it's very easy to be extremely negative. But that is part of like a functioning economy is like some places it's just cheaper to produce wheat. Yeah. And it is somewhere else. So it's like, the, you know, like the people who produce wheat cheaper, they'll trade with people who produce oranges cheaper. And like, it's like a win win for everyone. I don't think that's happening here, though. No, (laughs) you know, like, I'm not sure that that's exactly what's going on. But there is an art like, you know, I don't want to just like shit on like, everything completely. I, I do think there's that aspect as well. So I just have some examples of like some agriculture shit from 2020. Niger's exports, their exports are 75% uranium. Mali's exports were 72% gold. Zambia Zambia was 70% copper. Burundi was 69% coffee. Malawi, 55% tobacco. And Togo was 50% cotton. So the point I'm trying to make here is, these are all countries that have these IMF loans. Basically, what happens is you, you just start exporting one thing. Like the shrimp was in Bangladesh. All these countries, they have their own resource that kind of the entire industry gets pushed to. So the point being is it's like the IMF, like if, you know, the world needs uranium and gold and stuff or like the US needs that. So like they'll fund like, hey, we're going to give you this money, but like you need to ramp up gold. But then there's all these downstream effects that we don't really think about. Like everybody get you, you get your gold, but like the people there don't necessarily get uh, compensated as they otherwise would if there wasn't these like strange financial arrangements. These items are not mined or produced for local consumption, but for French nuclear plants, Chinese electronics, German supermarkets, British cigarette makers, and American clothing companies. I think that's a quote I took. Directly from the essay. So, the point is the labor force of these nations has been engineered towards feeding and powering other civilizations instead of nourishing and advancing their own. There's some criticism in Africa. So, the African nations import about 85% of their food. It's a lot. They pay more than 40 billion per year, a number estimated to reach 110 billion per year by 2025. To buy from other parts of the world what they could grow themselves, so basically the point is that bank and the the World Bank and the IMF policy help transform a continent of incredible agricultural riches into one reliant on the outworld to feed its people. That's just like a criticism of Africa that was in the essay. You know, to be honest, I haven't really like I don't I'm not I don't know enough about those situations, but that's what this guy was saying, and he was. He's the chief strategy officer of the human rights organization, so I'll go with him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I have some more bad shit to say <laughs> while we're rounding this off. Uh, so there is papers from 2011 and 2013 that showed that countries that took structural adjustment loans had higher levels of child mortality than those that did not. So there's like, if you want to get like scientific, it's like you you have worse child mortality if you take the loan <laughs> than if you didn't, which is. It's crazy. In 2017, there was analysis, an analysis was uh, virtually unanimous in finding detrimental association between structural adjustment and child and maternal health outcomes. So you have worth, worse child and mother health outcomes if you take these loans. A 2020 study reviewed data from 135 developing countries between 1980 and 2014, and they found that structural adjustment reforms lower health system access and increased neonatal mortality. So again, more evidence that like, you know, you're going to have more babies dying and you're going to have worse healthcare if you take this loan. And it should be the opposite. It should be the opposite, right? Yeah. Because you should be building. You should be ha- using the capital to build more. That's not what's happening. Uh, a paper from 2021 concluded that structural adjustment plays a significant role in perpetuating preventable disability and death. And then food security advocate Davidson Budho, he claimed that 6 million children died each year in Africa, Asia, and Latin America between 1982 and 1994 as a result of structural adjustment. So, like, if if we're, like, playing the numbers here, this puts the World Bank and the IMF's death toll in the same ballpark as the deaths caused by Stalin and Mao. If you if you want to if you want to look at it that way. I don't know.
1: <laughs> that sounds ins- that sounds like so crazy. I can't even wrap my head around it. It's, it's essentially like the World Bank and the IMF are the devil. It's like do you want to sell your soul <laughs> to the devil? If so, you'll get money, but it's just going to cause more problems than you can even like think of. This next section here, I don't know.
0: So we said a lot of crazy shit but it, I have just some more ridiculous shit to say. The World Bank, they pay high tax free sal- salaries and they have like generous benefits. So if you work for like the IMF or the World Bank, it's like it's a pretty fucking cozy job. The IMF staff are paid even better than the World Bank. And they traditionally are flown first or business class. Um, they don't like fly economy. They're just like, you know, they just like fly around and like make money and shit. They stay in five star hotels. What is this? I saw there's something here about they even had a perk to get free upgrades for the supersonic Concord when that was a thing. So it's like, there's just no, I don't know what the word is. It's just like, it's just so like ironic. Maybe that's not even the right word either. It's just like so fucked. (laughs) Maybe that's the right word. Yeah. (laughs) There's so the IMF, like, right, your salary. It's not, it's like, it, it's, it's not capped. And it always rises faster than inflation. So it's like the people that live under your structural adjustment, like they're kind of fucked and they have to deal with all this shit. Whereas like, you don't have to worry about anything. You just like show up, get the deal done kind of thing. Christine Lagarde, who was head of the IMF from 2011 to 2019, she made $467,940 per year. And she had an an additional $83,760 allowance.
1: Yeah. Pretty fucking ridiculous.
0: And they're just going around fucking people's shit up and like, oh, we're perspitting prosperity. And it's like, are you?
1: I want to work for them.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Got to take them from the, uh, take them down from the inside. <laughs> I think they'll, <laughs> but, uh, they'll take you down.
0: Probably, probably
1: assassinate what, me. Yeah, um, like assassinate it's the, them. It's the same thing with uh, charity organizations. Like if you talk to, countries where like charity has a big presence and you talk to the kids there uh, and you ask them like what they want to be when they grow up they don't say like doctors or engineers or anything like that anymore they say like they want to work for that charity organization because you know they actually have some standard of living like the charity will pay for their housing and meals and stuff like that so it's no longer like wanting to like help your own people it's just kind of what's best for you is to work for the charity I see. So it's kind of fucked.
0: So to end, uh, before we get into final thoughts, I have a quote from the Fiat Standard, which was a book written by Saifedina Moves. And he refers to the IMF and World Bank as the misery industry. And this is his quote to sum it all
1: up. He said, quote, When World Bank planning inevitably fails and the debts cannot be repaid, the IMF comes in to shake down the deadbeat countries, pillage their resources, and take control of political institutions. It is a symbiotic relationship between the two parasitic organizations that generates a lot of work, income and travel for the misery industry workers at the expense of poor countries that have to pay for it all in loans. The more one reads about it, the more one realizes how catastrophic it has been to hand this class of powerful yet unaccountable bureaucrats an endless line of fiat credit and unleash them on the world's poor. This arrangement allows unelected foreigners with nothing at stake to control and centrally plan entire nation's economies. Indigenous populations are removed from their lands Private businesses are closed to protect monopoly rights. Taxes are raised and property is confiscated. Tax free deals are provided to international corporations under the price of the international financial institutions, while local producers pay ever higher taxes and suffer from inflation to accommodate their government's fiscal incompetence. As part of the debt relief deals signed with the misery industry, Governments were asked to sell some of their most prized assets. This included government enterprises, but also national resources and entire swaths of land. The IMF would usually auction these to multinational corporations and negotiate with governments for them to be exempt from local taxes and laws. After decades of saturating the world with easy credit, the IFIs spent in the 1980s acting as repo men. They went through the wreckage of third world countries devastated by their policies and sold whatever was valuable to the multinational corporations, giving them protection from the law in the scrap heaps in which they operated. This reverse Robin Hood redistributed was the inevitable consequence of the dynamics created when these organizations were endowed with easy money. By ensuring the whole world stays on the US dollar standard, the IMF guarantees the US can continue to operate its inflationary monetary policy and export its inflation globally. Only when one understands the grand larceny at the heart of the global monetary system can one understand the plight of developing countries. End quote.
0: Extremely long quote, but I felt it was... Perfect to end the IMF. Shall
1: we hop in the final thoughts? Yeah, let's do it. It was a good quote to like summarize everything that we've talked about so far.
0: I don't know. How do you feel about this? What's going on?
1: Yeah. I've kind of made my opinions uh, clear from the beginning how even at the beginning I said like, you know, I've done some studies on, economics and like monetary policies and stuff. And you really don't learn about this stuff in school. Like you might touch on like, you know, what the IMF or World Bank does, but you don't actually, actually get into the impact they have on these countries. So actually taking a deep dive into this topic and learning what they do, you can, you, you just see how evil, um, and greedy, like these organizations, or even even countries can be, like they don't care who gets fucked over, what happens to this other country as long as they're getting paid or they're getting uh, resources or what they can from that country. Um, it's a very sad realization of the world, but it's also one that I think we would all benefit from learning about in school, uh, especially to like just understand how. Big this corruption is but of course you're never going to learn about that unless you kind of do the research on your own or you know listen to the swerve podcasts <laughs>
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah get educated by the swerve
0: podcast <laughs> yeah i mean that's the thing i don't think there's any other way to put it it's like evil is kind of the word that gets it's like it's a strong word but it's like so fitting it's it's very fucked i wanted to add a couple things in the final thoughts here one thing that like this debt trap that this is like really the problem is you can have someone unable to default on their loan in this system. So like in the, in a free market, like creditors, so like the IMF, they could actually lose money if they make shitty, risky loans. So if you're going out to like some developing country and it's run by like brutal dictators, instead of propping them up, you know, that's a shitty loan. Like, you you know, you, you can just guarantee you're not going to be paid back for that. You know what I mean? It's kind of like uh, like the subprime mortgage crisis when they're handing out these like shitty, like you could, you could be a crackhead and you're getting a fucking ho- house loan. You know, yeah. you're like getting loaned a house for a home. It's kind of the same thing. You're like loaning these crazy loans to like crackheads running countries. And you're like, oh, what's going to happen? It's like, well, of course they're going to fuck everything up. And, like, embezzle the money and, like, fuck over their people and, like, oppress people. It's a shitty loan. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but in a free market, like, you would actually lose that money. you just pick, oh, shit, I made a shitty loan. So, like, maybe I should be more prudent with my loans that I give out. But because, because it's the fucking IMF and they can just do whatever the hell they want, there's no like negative feedback me- mechanism to like make risky risky loans. You, you don't even have to think about it. So like there's continuous bailouts and an accumulation of debt. Instead of the country being wealthier and servicing their debt, and they're wealthier and independent and, pros- and prosperous, the only way you have to like, oh, fuck, they fucked up. I got a the dictator fucked up again. This 32-year military regime didn't, it fucked up again. I guess we have to issue more debt so they can pay us. I mean, I guess like it, it works for you as the person dominant in that financial structure, but like it doesn't.
1: It's not helping. You, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. The other thing, like I want to mention, is if you're getting these loans for the multinational companies to come in and you know build a hydro dam or something for utilities, and then you're also allowing that company to be exempt from taxes. It's like All those profits that they're making funded by that loan, you're not receiving the tax revenue to pay it back. So it's the people in that country that still have to burden that loan repayment. So it's just a win-win across the board from the perspective of the lenders of the money.
0: Yeah. So I, I don't know. This is final thought. I hate to bring this up, but I bring it up. It seems to keep coming back in episodes, but can Bitcoin solve this? I don't know. I don't know. This is just a thought. It's a final thought. Maybe you can. There's no money printer and you can't create debt. You're not going to be able to create debt. So you have to make more prudent decisions. There's no bailout coming because you can't just make more of it. (laughs) Yeah. So I I don't know. Like, is this the solution? (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's basically like, just again, to reiterate, to reiterate like the world bank and IMF, it's like, they've kind of bailed out countless tyrants. Um, And they, they, they don't really have like financial common sense. So it's like, I don't know, people like natural resources and labor are just like kind of exploited and it's just going to keep happening unless there's some kind of change in the financial structure. So that's, I don't know, it's my two cents. I'm wondering, I don't know, maybe it could, maybe it's something. The other thing that's crazy is like, there's just no kind of accountability. Like all these, the people who actually make the decisions at the IMF, like we don't know who they are. Like they're like this like shadowy group that like I don't know who the fuck they are, and they're just like arguably committing crimes against humanity. But like no one there is ever going to go on trial or like to prison, and they'll never be justice. So it's just like another like sad truth with this with this system. It's just like it just it's just never going to not be like that. And again, they probably don't even think they're doing anything bad. They're like, look, we put this we have shrimp we got shrimp and it's like but you fucked everything (laughs) (laughs) we got shrimp we got uranium we got gold we did good and it's like ah i guess but i don't know we'll see i don't know how long how much how this can go on for much longer like i really don't like really this is an experiment since like the 19 1944 Um, And really 1971 when the gold standard went off and like, it's like even in that Saifedeen quote, he's talking about how they can just continually print and bail out. It's the same thing. How long is this going to go on for? Can it? I don't know. I actually don't even know anymore.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's the world we know. So they don't know any different. Yeah.
0: When we did the Federal Reserve topic, it was something absurd. Was, there was like it was ridiculous. It was like two hundred fifty trillion in debt or something, and there was only like like ten trillion I forget what it was, but it was like a hundred x debt versus what there actually is, like real currency <laughs> or some shit. yeah, so it's like you can't even how can there be a hundred x debt <laughs> like you can't pay it back, obviously. Like something has to break. It's like you kind of just wait until whoever's the last one standing and then like you do it again. You you like you just it's like playing a a game and like everything goes to shit. You just flip the board and you're like you pull out a new game. That's kind of what it feels like. It's like we're just kind of waiting for it to break. Yeah. And then like someone's gonna flip the board and put out a new game. And the new game will be like who knows what it's gonna be, but someone's gonna do it. I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's my final
1: thought. I'm oh. outraged. <laughs> yeah, this topic was surprisingly just like heavy. <laughs> <It> sucked. <laughs> I mean, it was a great topic. Lots of information and like exposing the corruption in the world. But it's just, just, yeah, gives you no hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, I should also note at the end to like, we complain we like I'm outraged you're outraged we've complained but like at the end of the day it's like I'm probably not gonna do anything you know what I mean like yeah so it's like one of those ironic takes like we're just like these you know like yeah we'll bring it up on a podcast but like I'm not gonna like start using an outhouse and like stop using water and like giving all my money to like support some local initiative somewhere you know like we're like I'm just saying, I'm using us as an example, but it's really everyone. Like we kind of just, yeah, we'll just maintain our standard of living and like go on and like everyone else gets shit on and like, we'll kind of just forget about it. We'll know it in the back of our mind, but like, it's really not, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, also there's like this apathy that's just kind of like embedded in all of us and it's like impossible to fight.
1: Yeah. And it's like when you recognize it, you feel like shit, but like, you're like, well,
0: Netflix.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's the sandbox we play in. We were lucky enough to be kind of in a country where we ourselves can get loans and debt pretty easy, whereas uh, others are born into shrimp farming for a dollar a day. So it's crazy. Sucks, but so yeah, the it's cards are dealt.
0: It's crazy. So I, that's just another take I should put in final thoughts because it's it's sober. You know, yeah. it's. Um, let's roll out. Uh, thank you to Sidestepping the Sun for making the intro and outro music to the podcast. Also, as always, El Yukateco Hot Sauce, unofficial sponsor of the podcast, going to keep shouting them out until we secure them as a sponsor. I just really like the hot sauce. Um, I love spicy food, and I think if you're a listener and you like spicy food, I don't see why you wouldn't like El Hot Sauce. It's habanero based. So it's very spicy. It's not like based on jalapenos or uh, like other like I don't know bold ketchup shit that they make in stores. It's habanero. It's so it's hot. And the other thing, there's no calories, so you can spice up food and make it flavorful, and maintain a cut if that's what you want to do. It's just good. Um, I should make an electrolyte drink in the future, but I haven't done that yet. Surprisingly, hey.
1: Yeah a Caesar or something. Yeah. I'll mention once again that we have a Patreon. So if you've enjoyed this episode, there's more episodes you can catch over there. So it's www.patreon.com slash the Swerve Podcast. Uh, we have two tiers there. There's a $1 Ride the Wave tier, and that'll give you shout-outs on the podcast. It'll also give you access to those bonus episodes we release, as well as the library that's, that we have so far. Uh, and then for three dollars you can join the slap the ass tier and that'll give you shout outs on the podcast you'll get access to those bonus episodes and the library but you will also get all of our episodes both the main and the patreon episodes a few days before everyone else so you'll receive them on sundays rather than the typical drop time of wednesdays
0: hell yeah i'll also say uh you can follow us on all the socials you know we're on Follow us for uh, the drink recipes. We post those on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can also follow us there so you're notified when our episodes drop on every other Wednesday. Um, aside from that, I don't think I have any. Do I have news or updates or anything to talk about? Oh, yeah, uh, stickers. Yeah, go ahead. So the we have we, while supplies last, we're running low. Um, but there are still sticker packs available if you leave a five-star written review on apple podcast or spotify i guess we keep saying we never spotify when we first started saying this they didn't have a rating service but they have a rating service now so you could do that as well um, leave a review on those platforms and dm us about it and we'll send you we'll mail you out a sticker pack for free there's three weatherproof stickers with that But if you don't use Spotify or Apple Podcasts, don't worry. You can just make a case for yourself. We've had listeners do this where they're, you know, they subscribed on YouTube, followed on Instagram, liked on Facebook, shared our shit.
1: um, And we'll just send them stickers. So there's that. And you mentioned our social media, so you can interact with us there. Uh, You can also interact with us on our website. So it's www.com slash the swerve. I mean, (laughs) the com. (laughs) Forget the slashes. <laughs> uh, but there you'll find like links to all of our platforms that we're on, the episodes, the cover art, and stuff like that. But you will also see there's a form there. So you can submit your drink and topic recommendations anonymously if you want, um, but it helps us centralize those uh, recommendations. So instead of checking our DMs and messages, uh, we can kind of just go back and look for it in our... In our email there uh so yeah check out the website and interact with us there if you haven't done so already
0: hell yeah having said that slap that ass and
1: ride the wave
0: fucking coney 2012 man yeah (laughs) how many people gave money they bought some dumb sticker put it all over the place and what the guy just like took all the money got naked and like jerked off in a bush or some shit (laughs) like (laughs) like